0: McDonald's or Burger King, Nike or New Balance, Family Fair or Meyer. These are choices that each of us makes on a regular basis without really thinking too deeply about it. But these types of choices between businesses specializing in certain products that compete for our dollars within a free market are deeply rooted in the economic theories that arose from the Industrial Revolution in the time period 1750 to 1900. When we choose a Big Mac over a Whopper, we're using our hard-earned dollars to push McDonald's ahead in the hard-fought battle for consumer business. And somewhere, Adam Smith smiles. Welcome to part two of our Industrial Revolution Review, where we'll focus on the economic changes associated with the Industrial Revolution. As always, to fully understand these changes, it's important to have good historical context. In period two, 1450 to 1750, Europeans began utilizing an economic system called mercantilism. You may remember participating in mercantilism simulation in class. The basic idea here is that there's a fixed amount of wealth in the world. Basically, the world's wealth is like a pie, and the way to get rich was to control the biggest slice of the pie. So how could you do that? You could do it by acquiring colonies and forcing them to only trade with you. For example... Great Britain acquires 13 colonies in the United States, gets cheap raw materials from these colonies, turns them into expensive finished goods, and then sells them back to the colonists. The colonists were not allowed to buy products from other countries. So this type of system features heavy government involvement. Basically, the king and his ministers are making decisions about the economy to benefit the mother country at the expense of the colonies. And this system worked pretty okay for a while. But as time went on, liberal Enlightenment thinkers continued to propose that perhaps the government should not have so much control over all aspects of people's lives. And in 1776, a Scottish guy named Adam Smith published a book called The Wealth of Nations that changed everything. So you might recall Neil Ferguson calling him the smartest man ever. Uh, I really don't know if that's true, but I do think it's true that he's uh, smarter than Neil Ferguson. So that's something. Adam Smith gets a lot of credit for being the so-called father of capitalism, but that's only partially true. Modern capitalism has its roots in the European joint stock companies like the Dutch and British East India companies that came to prominence in the 17th century. These companies let common people buy stock in their companies to raise capital, a modern and novel idea that allowed them to raise huge amounts of money. In this model, the demands of the public marketplace were driving business and trade, not what the king thought was best. In his book, Adam Smith basically put all of these ideas together and essentially just dropped the mic on mercantilism forever. The key ideas behind capitalism, wealth is not fixed. You can create more of it. You can make a bigger wealth pie, you just have to learn how to bake better. So how do you create more wealth? Well, you do it by increasing worker productivity through specialization. So we discussed this in part one of the podcast. Um, again, this is the example of why McDonald's can make burgers and fries so much faster than you can. They have workers concentrate on performing specialized tasks. They do those tasks over and over and over again. They get really good at it. They use specialized tools and machinery, uh, and they get super productive, and they create more wealth. But that's not all that capitalism is. Capitalism dictates that the old heavy-handed mercantilist system is just plain dumb. Free trade is the key. Everyone should be able to trade with everyone with as little taxation as possible. The government should stay out of it and let the market dictate prices. People should be free to make their own choices and to buy and sell what they see fit. Since everyone wants to make money, their own self-interest will drive them to make good choices that will lead to a booming economy for all to enjoy, because at the end of the day, no one wants to be broke. And in a lot of ways, this works really well. But it also leads economics to get a lot more complex, because all of a sudden, so much more money is flowing. So capitalism will lead to the birth of stock markets, where people can buy and sell stocks uh, in different companies. It will lead to the creation of a gold standard where all global currency will be tied to a specific amount of gold, and it's going to lead to a massive rise in banking. Now, banking is not new. It's been around for a long time. Uh, but again, it's going to become much more complex in period three. Smart people are going to figure out how to use banking systems, and they're going to not only use how to learn how to use them better, but also how to abuse them to lend money to wannabe factory owners. And rich nations are going to figure out how to lend to poor nations. So capitalism is going to really fuel imperialism in a lot of ways. So an example would be like the Ottoman Empire, right? So the Ottomans realize that they need to be more like the British and get machines. But first, they need money to build machines. So they have to borrow money from British banks, and they go in debt. So in order to be like Britain, the Ottomans need to borrow from Britain. And guess what? Britain's already way far ahead, so the Ottomans have no chance to catch up and produce things for cheaper. So people only buy British stuff, and now the Ottomans still owe the British, and the British can take control of Ottoman property because the Ottomans can't pay off their debts. So again, capitalism, you got to take the good with the bad sometimes. So a big part of capitalism is going to be that the development of industrial capitalism leads to increased standards of living for some people into continued improvement in manufacturing methods that increases the availability and variety of affordable consumer goods. So to put that into basic terms, we enjoy this variety of affordable consumer goods every time we walk into Meijer and rejoice at like the 75 different varieties of Pop-Tarts or the 20 different varieties of Cheerios. So this is a huge change, right? So all of a sudden, the average person has way more ability to go to a store and buy the basic things that they need. So again, capitalism does lead to way more wealth, and it is gonna lead to increased standards of living for a lot of people, but not all, as we'll look at in a second. So a really key idea here, with the Industrial Revolution, a lot of people can afford to buy the stuff that they want. And that's really, really powerful, because no matter what complaints we have about the injustices of the Industrial Revolution, We all love buying stuff too much to ever really want to go back. So again, we all know that capitalism has led to a lot of inequalities, uh, that the Industrial Revolution has a lot of negative sides to it, but does anyone really want to go back to the days before this? Probably not. So, not everyone benefits from capitalism. While it created more insane wealth than ever before, it was not distributed equally to all in society. Factory and business owners made tons of money, but many of their workers worked in horrible, unsafe, and unregulated conditions and lived in dirty, dangerous, disease-ridden slums in rapidly expanding urban areas with little access to public education or health services. This made people realize that capitalism alone can't make a good society, and people start to act out against the the harsh realities of a capitalist system. Socialism developed as a theory in reaction against capitalism. The theory of socialism questioned why the poor should be risking their lives in dangerous and dirty factories in the richest countries on earth while other men who didn't even do the hard factory work became ultra rich. Socialists argued that the wealth should be shared through heavy taxation on the rich. In a way, all of society should share ownership of the wealth-producing factories. Then, the government could afford to pay for free public schools, free healthcare, and safety regulations. How would these socialist reforms be put into place? By taking advantage of expanding democratic freedoms in western nations and voting politicians into office who would help make these reforms a reality. So, that's the socialist idea, right? And a lot of socialists, again, they're pretty optimistic. They say, hey, you know what? Democracy, this is going to be the key to making life better for workers. We just got to vote people into office that will help put some of these labor reforms into place. So now let's take a look at some people that maybe weren't quite so optimistic. Communism is going to develop as a radical form of socialism. Yes, Communists wanted wealth to be shared, but they didn't agree with the socialists that democracy alone could convince the rich to share their wealth with the poor. Communists wanted revolution, where the poor would rise up and take wealth violently from the rich. They felt that the rich would never voluntarily share their wealth, so the only real way to get it would be to pry it from their cold, dead hands. This theory is partially created by Karl Marx, a German philosopher and historian, and the famous author of the Communist Manifesto. Marx not only called for equality for the poor, he demanded radical social equality for all people, regardless of race, nationality, religion, or sex. These theories, along with communism, made up the philosophy of Marxism. These ideas were very controversial, especially when Marx claimed that religion and nationalism were fake plots created by the rich to distract and divide the poor. However, at the end of the day, Marx was wrong in his theory that factory workers in the first industrialized countries would naturally rise up in complete communist revolutions. England, the United States, and Germany were the most industrialized nations, and each of these avoided a revolution. However, socialism and the work of labor unions did convince governments in these countries to take higher taxes from the rich, To provide some protection and benefits to the poor. Some historians argue that these programs proved Marx wrong. The rich could be convinced to share some of their wealth if it meant avoiding a communist revolution. So so what were some of these reforms that were put into place? So governments in places like the United States, Britain, Germany, uh, and even Japan are going to create public education for all They're going to put housing codes in place, make sure that all apartments have fire escapes, a bathroom, and a window. There's going to be work safety codes and laws guaranteeing no more than an eight-hour workday. There'll be laws against child labor. And there's going to be health codes, making sure that foods we eat are safe and that companies aren't trying to get rich by selling old, spoiled food. Uh, So an example of this would be like the United States and the Meat and Drug Inspection Act of 1906. So at the end of the day, history has shown that capitalism combined with socialist reforms, leads to enormous wealth and prosperity. Today, all major economies blend aspects of these systems together. and In fact, knowledge of some socialist-inspired government programs probably encourages more capitalistic impulses because entrepreneurs feel safe taking risks because the government has put these safety nets in place. Marx was also wrong in that he did not predict the emergence of a new economic class called the middle class, people like teachers, factory managers. This class provided a way for the poor to rise up in society and then they could purchase all those new shiny consumer goods that everyone was so excited about. So given this option, workers were not so desperate and they didn't revolt the way that Marx predicted. But not all countries would put necessary labor reforms into place And not all nations would see the rise of a prosperous middle class. So while the first nations to industrialize did not see a communist revolution, a nation that raced to catch up to more industrialized nations did. Russia, in its feverish attempts to industrialize, wound up having all of the precursors for revolution and none of the cures that we saw in England, the United States, Germany, and other early to industrialized lands. And because of this, it would be the land of the czars that the world would see the creation of the first socialist state in the early 20th century. So that was a lot of information. Let's end by coming full circle. The Industrial Revolution changed everything. From the time you woke up this morning to when you went to sleep, it's likely that your pattern of living would be fairly familiar to someone born after industrialization, but very unfamiliar to someone born before. So for better or worse, Rejoice in your machine-produced clothes, your fossil fuel-powered transportation, your electricity-fueled lighting, and your massive amount of choice in selecting consumer goods. They are the end results of the greatest transformation in human life since farming, and even with all of the negative aspects of this transformation, most of us don't want them to go away anytime soon. Stay safe, wash your hands, see you guys soon.